Welcome, everybody, to another episode of Armchair Generals. In the armchair with me today, as always, is Andrew. Andrew, what are you drinking today? I am drinking Dad Pants Pilsner from Barrel Brothers, brewed in Windsor, uh, Sonoma County, California. It's uh, a local brew. A local brew, and anything with the name Dad Pants is pretty awesome. So I'm going to give this a an open here. That is for all our ASMR listeners out there. I hope you enjoyed it. Absolutely. I will say this can is pretty cool looking. And uh, it describes on the back uh, what loggers are. And so obviously... Oh, fun. Pretty cool. I would say they're marketing pretty good. And uh, the beer is nice and crisp. What about you, my yeah. man? What, what are you drinking? What, what are the ta- well, what are the tasting notes? Ah, let me... Let me... Of that. Let's, let's, get a, let's get a sip going. It's... A little, uh, a little hoppy for me, but ah. but tasty. Uh, as a logger, you can tell um, maybe higher levels of hops or a different hop blend than what I'm used to. But ah, really good. What about still crisp? Though. Still very crisp and drinking it cold. So great. Well, I am drinking as the resident booze hound <laughs> on the show. I am drinking an old-fashioned cocktail made with another local product, Fog City Bourbon, a craft bourbon for fine drinkers everywhere. Um, Yeah, really, really nice bourbon. uh, And I will say this for the listeners out there so you don't think I'm just a corporate shill, that uh, Andrew and I actually produced this bourbon ourselves. And uh, it can be found in stores in San Francisco and Los Angeles, a uh, a peppery, oaky, mapley bourbon experience. Uh, really good stuff. It really mixes nicely into an old fashioned. So I'm, that's what I'm enjoying. I usually drink beer, but when I'm not drinking beer, I'm drinking Fog City bourbon. That is quite smooth. I used a. Uh, I make my own Demerara simple syrup at home. Um, I use that instead of standard simple syrup. So a brown sugar uh, base, Demerara sugar base. Um, So that adds a nice additional bit of complexity and sort of burnt smoky flavor into this old fashioned. It's really nice. So I'm really, I'm really going to enjoy this. That's, that sounds so tasty right now. And the more I have of this beer, actually, it's, it is a very nice crisp taste. It's really growing on me. So I'm glad we're both enjoying our drinks. Uh, what, uh, what do you want to talk about this week in the armchair? Well, you know, it has been a very eventful couple of weeks in the world. A lot to cover. So let's get into it. OPEC. What is going on with OPEC? You know, I did not appreciate Joe Biden uh, going to Saudi Arabia to shake hands with MBS. I thought that was a a bad optics look. But on the other hand, I thought, well, major oil producer want to bring inflation under control, want to control the rising energy costs. Saudi is an important player in that market. So maybe this is a bit of real politic and I might might not like it, but the outcome could be important. And instead we get 
a backhand from these guys. Uh, yeah, so OPEC Plus, led by Saudis, have decided to cut oil production by 2 million barrels a day. And Russia's in there, too. I think it's important to remember. And, Ru- and Russia, Russia is one of the members of OPEC. Uh, and they want to prop up oil prices in the face of a looming uh, recession in the U.S., China, and Europe, the major energy uh, importing markets. So oil right now, I believe Brent crude, uh, the benchmark price remains at about 98 barrels. So that's well below peak prices after Russia invaded Ukraine, where there's a major price spike. Um, so we'll see what happens. But this is this has been a, a disappointing development uh, and, and an embarrassment for the Biden administration, I feel. What are, what are your thoughts? I almost feel it's too early to know. Um the market, at least the oil market, didn't seem to move much, the future market. Uh, but at the same time, optically, it's horrendous. Uh, there's no way around it. You have basically the region that relies on our security guarantees, Saudi Arabia in particular, uh, large. We support him significantly, Saudi government, in their their ongoing war in Yemen and Biden went out, as you mentioned, the idea that he would turn around, MBS would turn around and do this. um, I don't, even if it's not on, it meant as a slap in the face to the U.S., there's just no way from a political sense it can go unchastised. And I think we're seeing that, that there's discussion of how do you punish the Saudis in a way, and not just the Saudis, but the rest of uh, rest of OPEC plus, obviously the Russians trying to put oil, you know, G seven's trying to put oil caps on them. But how do you do you cut off arms deliveries? Uh, it's it's an interesting quagmire. Uh, you know, I don't think the Saudis are going to be turning around to the Russians right now and say, "Hey, can you sell us some equipment?" Uh, given how we've seen the Russians perform in the Ukraine, and I doubt they have much I to sell. Think it's really problematic. There are a lot of levers that we have that we can pull to to chastise them. But most importantly, the current production remains 3 million barrels below the current production ceiling. So drop cutting 2 million barrels a day of production still is 1 million barrels more than is currently being produced with Brent crude still trading at $98 a barrel. So what is even the point other than to embarrass the Biden administration? Or is it Russia throwing a tantrum within OPEC and the other members of OPEC throwing them a bone? I I don't, I don't know. I wonder, I would love to be a fly on the wall for the back channel communications that are happening because I think in time, there's more we can do to make it harder for the Saudis than the Saudis can do on us. I mean, if oil prices go up, shale drilling will increase, right? And you know, who's going to get hurt are the countries that are heavily reliant on oil prices in the long run when they go back down. And so I'm uncertain what the play here is. They don't want prices, you know, OPEC plus doesn't want prices to go too high. Otherwise more players get into the drilling game. And then 
then it's just a competition against their overall position against yeah. their own. Yeah. And so there's the last cycle when they tried to crush rates and then, you know, U S oil companies and other Western companies, which are outside OPEC, um, they just gain because they're not part of the, the OPEC quota. So prices go up, U S producers produce more oil. You know, it might shore up the the oil per OPEC uh, national coffers, but I think in the long run, it's not the. I don't know if it's going to matter in the long run. It's just a it's a short run thing coming up into the election cycle. You know, it seems really political to me, but I don't I don't know any more than the rest of you. Well, speaking of things that are political ongoing protests in Iran have really begun to cause trouble for the regime there. Um, former Foreign Affairs Minister Mohammad Zafri stated on uh, in October that the regime cannot ignore its people, referring to protests. This more sympathetic rhetoric diverges from the hard line that other senior political and security officials have taken on the protests. Uh, this guy, the former foreign affairs minister, was a former member of President Hassan Rouhani's moderate administration. That administration is no longer in power. So, yeah, this is um, this is getting kind of crazy. Street protests for now the third, the third week in a row. Uh, internet traffic in Iran is uh, down seventy five percent based on my last check-in so a lot of repression going on there and uh, there i think we can draw some parallels to the 1979 revolution and of course some stark differences so in uh in 79 the obviously the military um did not defend the shah's regime regime and the shah lent legitimacy to the protests when he stated that the people had uh a right to express their discontent and they were they had legitimate reasons for their discontent so the current iranian administration has not staked those positions out yet uh where do you see this going in my mind it all comes down to the population that's behind this movement and whether or not the security apparatus steps in if it's just the more educated, liberal, more liberal elites in the cities, I don't think this goes anywhere. Because the regime still has bastions uh, in the country in the more rural areas where uh, their hardliners really draw their support. What I, what I wonder about is the longer this goes on, the more economic uncertainty, the more that there's a global recession – does this draw out the the base of the theocracy's regime, the the backing, the the base support for the theocracy's regime onto the streets? Just because bread prices go high, it's you know it's not so much it moves from hey I don't want to wear the hijab to you know, my my rights to protest are being curtailed to more basic fundamental things like the price of bread is high. Uh, I've lost my job and I can't support my family. When we get to that point, I think the regime's really in trouble. I agree with you. 
Uh, for those listeners out there who are interested in a deep dive on this, Kim Gaddis uh, wrote an excellent book called Black Wave uh, regarding the 1979 revolution and its antecedents. I highly recommend it. It was really informative and instructive, and she was an excellent, uh, provided excellent research and an excellent narrative. Um, so that is something I encourage everyone who's interested in the history of the Iranian revolution and the history of the broader Middle East uh, just before and just after 1979 to check out. I think that, I think I've said this before, uh, this is the same as how a person goes bankrupt slowly and then all at once. So this could be the beginning of something or not. We don't know. The Iranian society has many uh, pillars of support that have not joined in these protests. Um, they're not particularly popular in the rural areas, as you pointed out. They're not particularly popular among the merchant class. And this is one thing that the Iranian regime did post-1979 is it, it neutered the business class, the merchant class, by bringing a lot of economic activity under the direct supervision of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, which means that uh, economic, that, that the largesse of the state is really directed through the most hardline elements of the Iranian government and can prevent the sort of money moneyed uprising that uh, you did see in 79, in addition, the military is firmly on the sidelines and the clerical class is obviously on the side of the clerical government. So this all leads me to think that there are some real headwinds against meaningful change, but it is shocking uh, how many people are engaged in these, these street protests and for how long. So we'll, we'll, we'll continue to monitor the situation. We'll see what comes of it. Absolutely. And uh, if we're talking about this next week, I think every week that this is still a story, um, the greater the chances that the, the protesters get what they want. It is not a good look for the Russians that one of their principal arms suppliers and supporters is engaged in this level of domestic strife while they are trapped in an increasingly dire war. Well, I mean, yes, but I think it almost it's almost like a greek tragedy look at the the recent un general assembly vote uh, i think it was 143 against their annexation 5-4 those countries that voted for those aren't the countries you want to be friends with you know north korea syria i think one of them was in south america iran that bastion of human enlightenment exactly korea. exactly and so you know, you know, these protests, not a good look. You know, it's interesting how things have turned where Russia, which was the, you know, the Soviet Union, which exported their arms, are now on the receiving end for more, I don't want to say more, t more advanced weapons readings, because I don't think the, the uh, loitering munitions the Iranians are providing are particularly advanced, but the Russians don't seem to have the ability to produce them on their own. And it's really telling. Um, and I know we'll talk about that later in the episode. Speaking of things later in the episode, what is happening in Ukraine right now? So many things. Uh, so many things. It's 
so much is is happening and there's going to be if anything happens before the winter it's going to happen in the next few weeks it's getting cold in the ukraine at a certain point travel off road is going to get much more difficult and as the infrastructure has been destroyed soldiers are going to be stuck just trying to stay warm and dry and fed and uh you know i'm sure those 300,000 recent russian uh recruits are are not going to be loving it but on a high level the kirch bridge was blown up i want to talk about this one first there's a lot of things going on but that was really politically important i would say i mean it, it it's it was a key development of Putin's. It was a hugely symbolic, very symbolic. It was a prestige product project for him. And I mean, he a real, a real signal of the return of Russian, the Russian empire. Absolutely. Crimea being the crown jewel of the former Russian imperial state. And this, this physical connection of, the the of Crimea to the Russian motherland via this bridge. I don't think the psychological importance can be overstated. Uh, uh, blown up on Vladimir Putin's seventieth. I think it was the day after his birthday, but it was close enough. I'm gonna. I don't know what side of the international <laughs> dateline they're on. And and I will also add that Putin inaugurated this bridge by driving over it himself in a red truck. So, you know, symbolism. Symbolism. It it had to burn. I mean, it this this may be one of the most technologically advanced things the Russians have built in a while. You know, maybe Nord Stream two, Nord Stream one. But a twelve mile long bridge is impressive. No matter, it's technically challenging. It's technically challenging. Cost billions and billions and billions of dollars. It took a long time. And we have to remember, Russia is a relatively poor country with GDP smaller than Italy's. This is a major engineering project for a country that doesn't have great industrial might. Absolutely. And it's a project that Putin personally involved himself in. And we've we've talked about it. Analysts have been talking about it. Everybody said, okay, at some point this bridge was going to become a target for no other reason than... It's strategically important. There's no other way for the Russians to get equipment and material and troops from what is Russia into what they're now claiming, you know, their new Russia or whatever, without having to put it on a ferry and go across the 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 strait there. It it has an impact immediately on on the troops on the front line i mean there's however many days it's been down is days that truckloads of munitions have not been and you know rail cars full of munitions have not been going across i read from uh, our friends over at the institute for the study of war that uh they are now reduced to barge or ferry transit over the kirch strait um, and that there was a four-day-long wait for trucks to get across, which is 
a shockingly long time when those are desperately needed supplies at the front line. So this puts the Russian Southern Military District at a distinct disadvantage over a period in which it looks like Ukraine is really going to press its advantage, at least up to the right bank of the Dnieper River. I I read the same thing. I think what's going to and and putting things on barges limits what can actually be transported in total. So there are there you know tanks and the like that can't efficiently move on these barges. So I mean, speaking of Kherson, Kherson, uh, Ukrainian advances. I more and more am thinking there's going to be either an encirclement. Or they're just going to cut off a significant number of Russian troops. Or at some point, you're just going to see mass surrenders of Russian troops on the western bank of the Dnipro River. What are your thoughts on that? Oh, I completely agree with you. I think that we're still this. It's a shattered military and that this is really the culmination of the Ukrainian counteroffensive to date is going to be pressing its advantage in that Southern military district already conscripts um, who were called up in that partial mobilization have been reported as KIA. Many of them are simply being used to plug holes and understrength units on the front line. Uh, I had read that, um, at least five were killed uh, from the 15th Regiment of the 27th Motor Rifle, Rifle Brigade, which is one of the premier Russian units, which has just been totally mauled in, uh, in, in and around Kherson. Um, and it's just really it continues to be uh, shocking that the number of uh, killed and wounded one Russian mill blogger suggested that up to 10,000 would be killed and 40,000 wounded from this latest partial mobilization because of lack of equipment, training, morale, and unit cohesion. So it's really uh, not a good situation if you're a Russian. Um, increasingly degraded morale, discipline, and combat capabilities among Russian troops are probably going to lead to suspended offensive operations throughout the Donbass which again gives the initiative to the Ukrainians who continue to press their advantage on every front. Well, I also read one, one final thought. I think this is very interesting. Uh, in some reports have it that Ukrainian troops are marking their vehicles with Russian markings because the Ukrainians have modern friend or foe identification systems and the Russians don't. The Russians will still rely on physical markings on the outside of their equipment to organize and identify targets. And so the Ukrainians have been able to use their sophisticated electronic IFF um, to confuse and infiltrate the lines of Russian combat formations. So it's like they're being outplayed at every level tactical to strategic absolutely and i completely agree with what you said i saw some reporting that had video from some recently mobilized troops who said they had been mobilized 11 days prior and i believe at that point they were 
in Svatov and they had not had any refreshing training. One person said he was allowed to fire three cartridges. It was the extent of his training before he was shipped off to the front. That's going to get back to the mothers and the, the family members of those mobilized troops at some point. And inevitably, because of the haphazard method of this mobilization has been conducted, no information is getting back to family members. These soldiers are not, it's not clear even what units they're being sent to. And it will not be clear when they die where they're to go home, how they're to be retrieved, or who's going to let the families know. And this will inevitably lead to Russian mothers and Russian widows organizing human rights groups to find out what happened and to redress the government for this. And this will not be a good look for the Putin regime when you know, countless wives and mothers of these soldiers are banging on the doors of the Kremlin demanding answers to where their sons and husbands are. Absolutely. I mean, it, it reminds me of the beginning of the war when uh, the, the governors and mayors in Ukraine were fighting off Russian troops and then pushing them back and saying, hey, Russia, we have, you know, thousands of dead Ru Russian soldiers' bodies we would like to give them back to you or repatriate them in some way or figure out some way to bury them. But they got no response because for the government to engage with them, for the Russian government to engage with them would have been a, an acknowledgement of the defeat on the, on the front line. Yes. And, you know, this ties into a degree with what we've seen throughout this war. There's, there are battles, there's circles within circles, right? There's Putin as an autocrat, as a dictator. His personal ego is so central to all of this. When it, it is bruised, let's say he has a loss on the battlefield or the Kerch Bridge gets blown up and it's his prestige project. He lashes out and he lashes out in ways that end up hurting him more in the end. So he does a salvo, two days roughly of salvos, of cruise missiles, which from everything I've read, the Russians can't easily replace and they don't have huge stockpiles of. Uh, it hits mostly civilian targets and civilian infrastructure in Ukraine. And it's meant to, you know, probably in the eyes of Putin and, and, and the, the most conservative militant mill bloggers, punish the Ukrainians, you know, have this total war concept. But in my mind, it does two things. One, it's kind of solidifies the idea that this is a crucible for Ukrainian identity and that the more you're pushing on the Ukrainians and you're heating it up and you're making it hard for them, the more that they persevere and stick together. It's like forming, it's forming that solid steel core of Ukrainian national, you know, national identity. From there, you're just making your your goal harder of destroying them add on top of that you have the external factors if you start bombing and blowing up civilian targets long ways from the front on video you know the, everyone has their smartphone and the ukrainian government is playing this particularly well they turn around show the video hey they tried to blow up 
you know, a civilian bridge. It's glass bridge, a pedestrian. It was right next to the blast crater was right next to this park. Uh, you see this now push to provide them with air defense systems that people had been hesitant to provide. And this is now becoming a discussion, you know, within NATO and, and, and the wider European uh, community. This, this directly harms Russia. So Russia is doing something that they, they must realize doesn't actually help them on the battlefield, but it makes their internal messaging kind of more coherent. But it's going to hurt them. And this isn't the first time this cycle has occurred. That's exactly right. The, this is complete for consumption of a right-wing domestic nationalist audience in Russia. These revenge attacks. They have no purpose uh, strategically. And they have no purpose in defeating Ukraine. Absolutely not. And I, I read that each one of the cruise missiles utilized, the caliber cruise missile, costs about $6.5 million dollars. Which seemed particularly high for me, given my comparison for the U.S. stockpile. Uh, the missiles cost significantly less. But that meant they used roughly a half billion dollars worth of missiles in basically a tantrum. In a spasm of anger. Absolutely. And, you know, we touched on it. This is a country with a GDP less than Italy. Economic powerhouse of Europe, <laughs> Italy. It, it's just shocking to me at times because you, you, you see this and then you add on top of that some of the other kind of internal confusion, right? The, the Russians now named a, a theater commander, like a head of the Ukrainian operation for the first time, which from the Armageddon Marshal. Exactly. From his work. General Armageddon, General Armageddon. I believe his nickname. He definitely a colorful character. Uh, has been involved in, you know, I will admit some of Russia's, if you want to call them successes, uh, but mostly known for his just brutality and willingness to do whatever to, to, to punish and, and destroy, you know, for example, Aleppo in Syria. What I wonder about is if you're going to do a special military operation you think the first thing you would have done was set somebody in charge of it but in putin's mind in in dictatorships you can't have other people who shine brightly in your security apparatus so he so he has he has to have you know mediocre mediocrity surrounding him and the people he can control this operation in no way is going well. I mean, you even see the Russian media. They're starting to discuss, like, what do we have to do to try and make this? Work? And, and they use the war word, the, the three-letter three letter W word, which is anathema, that if we remember at the beginning of this, people were getting arrested for. But now it's come into the, into the lexicon of the, the, the average telecaster. And you're just – it's shocking to me that you have this – I don't want to call it ineptitude. It's just, yeah, I mean, it's it's unwillingness to, to come to grips with reality in a way. Like many dictatorships, they're hollow on the inside. It's Potemkin. It's theater. And they have no, there's no resiliency. There's no depth. 
So when they come up against something this unexpected, they can't adapt in quickly at all. Uh, and I mean, I think a perfect illustration is what you brought up, that in a dictatorship, no one else can be seen to be taking credit except the great leader. So everyone else must defer to his leadership. But Putin made a massive strategic miscalculation, thought his forces were stronger than they were, thought Ukraine was weaker than it was, thought the West was more fickle than it is. And all of these levels of miscalculation has led him to this unmitigated strategic disaster in Ukraine. And what will come next, we can only guess at. This is not the situation he expected to be in. And so naming a, a general to command the whole operation really illustrates the dire straits. Because now he is willing to allow a subordinate to, to be a headline figure in this operation uh, at personal risk to his own infallibility. Uh, if this general is successful, it could be a real, really damaging for Putin's reputation inside of Russia. Um, if he's not successful, it's still damaging, but perhaps less so. Where I, where I, I see this going in a way is this mobilization per Putin. I think they've put out communications that the mobilization is going to be done in two weeks. They're over. They've already mobilized over 220,000 people. They're going to hit their 300,000, 300,000 person cap shortly. Uh, but to what effect? If there's no ability to train the troops, let alone, and I saw an let interesting alone arm art, or supply them, yeah, arm them or, or, or put them in theater with equipment that will allow them to survive in basically frontline towns and cities that lack running water, electricity, and natural gas supplies through really bad winter, a wet, cold, freezing winter in, in essence, hostile territory. For someone who just came from a desk job, uh, for the last several years, it's going to be brutal. And and the communications we see on the news about people fleeing the country, I think you're going to start seeing if the weather gets really bad and people and the command and control isn't there, you're going to just start seeing mass surrenders. And I think Ukrainians expect it for no other reason than they've been pushing out this message on how to surrender you know, ma blanketing mobile phones in the area. It's going to be really, it's going to be really interesting. And even the battlefield successes the Russians have, uh, you know, the, the, the Wagner group has, has moved fo forward in the, in the, in the Donbass around Donetsk. But the fact is that whole advance line of advance is under threat from the, the, northern hook of the ukrainian advance at some point you know i'm sure the ukrainians are thinking just bleed them dry as they move forward and then they're going to get stuck i was reading that there may be some type of falling out between putin and uh the the wagner group's head for no other reason than the the wagner group really was made up of a lot of the highest most skilled professionals 
and people who had retired with significant experience and had built up experience in wars in the Middle East and in Africa. And they're being sent in as frontline troops, which isn't and being ground up. Uh, some, I read somewhere that something of the, you know, the 5,000 standing troops that they had, over you know, 2,000 of them had been killed. And that's not sustainable. Um, you know, the Ukrainians are building up and arming and training troops. The Russians seem to be coming out to World War One, World War II tactics of almost like wave, human waves. And in modern warfare, that doesn't work. No, you're you're right. It's it's really, really bad for for the average Russian. And we're while you said the partial partial mobilization uh, is nearing completion. What I have heard now is already groundwork for the idea that this mobilization is just one of a wave of mobilization or that mobilization is an ongoing process. That while we the first wave of mobilization was only 300,000 troops, we will continue to mobilize. Or it's oblast by oblast, where some oblasts are saying, well, we fulfilled their requirement, but these other oblasts need to fulfill theirs. And so there's this breaking up of the definition of what this partial mobilization looks like. And in a upside down mirror world like Russia is, you can say partial mobilization, but really mean general mobilization. You can just continue to call it whatever you want. You could call it clown college. We're sending all the men to clown college. Make sure you report to that right away and that's you that's they're going to get sent to the front lines and it's all kabuki theater to allay the fears of the more cosmopolitan public and or ethnic minorities who are disproportionately sharing the 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 burden of this conflict while also appeasing nationalist right-wing critics in the military blogosphere who are calling this what it is, a fiasco, a disaster, and plugging in uh, men who a week before had been sitting behind a desk uh, at some office building in St. Petersburg and then throwing an AK-47 in their hands and packing them off to some tiny Ukrainian town where they're going to get shelled every day is not a recipe for battlefield success. Like, that guy is just going to get himself killed. And it's just... Or he's he's not not going to fight. fight. And that has also continued to be a a theme of the conflict, is uh, soldiers and units refusing combat orders. Um, One of the reasons it seems like Russia has taken their foot off the gas pedal in Donetsk, uh, in their offensive operations in Donetsk, is... Soldiers are simply refusing to fight. They're simply saying, they're, "No, we're not gonna, we're not gonna go take that hill because it's what's the point." So, this is uh, this is not going to be a successful fight for the Russians. And the question is, how long are they going to stick around, and how many people are going to die as a result of this mistake? It reminds me of almost like a Greek. It, I've mentioned this, but it's like a Greek tragedy. Where it's it's comedic, but it's so sad. Like these are people's lives. 
the idea that you had a, uh, you know, a partial mobilization is crazy enough. And Putin set, went on national TV and said that with like mostly a straight face. Right. Um, but this farce started with special military operation. It's not a war. We're just sending our entire professional army on a operation into another country. Yeah. Oh, and by the way, we, we happened to throw some, some conscripts in there. We didn't mean to, but we happened to, right? Where I, where I wonder what's going to happen to me, like at some point, are they going to get competent commanders? Like, is, is this going to get so bad for the Russians where Putin's just going to start shooting, you know, pull out like Soviet style tactics. Like Shogun's getting, we're going to shoot Shogun. And they're just going to find somebody who lower down in the ranks, who's actually good at this. And he's just going to empower. Yeah. Where's their marshals? I fear that. Exactly. I fear that because no matter what they have more people and they're closer, you know, the, whatever amount of arms the U S sends, what, if they end up having the same type of morale and, and military strategy, it's just going to be a battle of attrition and the Ukrainians. Will yeah. Win I would disagree with the notion that all they need is competent battlefield command because I don't, no, it's I, the morale. They need the, the people on the front at, line at, need morale. Like, right. And there, I don't think there is any salvaging of purpose or direction or morale given what has already transpired. If you look at, say you look at World War II, a brutal, attritional warfare, the difference was the Germans were in Russia and the Russians were defending their homeland. And while the Soviet officer corps did not care how many young Russian men it took to beat back the Germans, many of those men probably believed that this was a noble and patriotic cause to defend the motherland against invading Germans. That The Great, the great Patriotic, patriotic War. War. And that is not a narrative that can be constructed around Ukraine. And there is, there is no, there is no political sleight of hand that can defend that position, I think inside of Russia and Putin just look, just look at the hundreds and hundreds of thousands of Russians who have fled the country. And they, um, the, and the Putin government has broken the social compact. They like the agreement with this with you know the average person was you stay out of politics, and we will promise you a rising standard of income and we will, a rising standard of living and we will leave you alone and safety. Well, and safety and he there's no longer safety. There's no longer a rising standard of living, and the government is not leaving them alone. It's ta- it's dragooning them and sending them to die in a foreign adventure, which. The last time the Russians did these things, it led to collapses of the Russian government. So I kind of think it's almost inevitable at this point. There's a potential that we get a Vietnam-style solution where there's an agreement that the Russians will leave and there is some hand-wringing in Ukraine about allowing additional autonomy for the Donbass. And then the Russians will be gone and the Ukrainians will just reassert control over those areas 
and that'll be that. And the Russians will have been handed a bloody nose and maybe Putin survives. I think that's the best the Russians can hope for at this point. It has to be a political solution. I, I agree. The whole concept that this is going to be completely solved on the battlefield, I don't think is 100% true. I mean, the facts on the ground are going to dictate the political solution. But David Petraeus had an interesting interview this last week where he said this is unequivocally shifted like they there's nothing the russians can do to come back from this they don't have the morale they they're just so far behind the curve right now that this is just at least from a political from a morale from a military strategy perspective like the formation of the ukrainian military is going from what was in one day before the invasion by Russia in 2014, which was a Soviet army, basically, to today, a Western-style, almost entirely equipped with Western NATO standard equipment in NATO standard formations with highly competent battlefield commanders, or at least, if not highly competent, highly experienced battlefield commanders. And that is fighting conscripts who don't want to be there, who were the poor, the poor Russians who couldn't pay to get to the border and flee into Georgia or Finland before they cut the border. This isn't going to go well. And I think the the bloodshed will be limited if we, as in the West, help the Ukrainians win as soon as possible. That's right. That's right. Well, it's going to be a continuing topic of discussion for us long into the future. I think we're going to be discussing this war at least until the middle of next year, perhaps <laughs> longer. Uh, but hopefully sooner, because that means more lives saved. One thing I think we should discuss, the threat of nuclear weapons. This is, it continues to come up. Putin likes to bring it up because it's for a domestic audience, and I it's it's a sign of weakness, and I know we've covered this in prior episodes, but he brought it up again this week. I'll tell you where I sit, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. Putin does this for the a domestic audience. Yes, he wants to tell the U.S. I don't think he really cares about the rest of Europe, honestly. I think he's telling Biden, I may drop a tactical nuclear weapon here. And it's interesting that the, the military bloggers in Russia, no one talks strategic weapons because they don't want to die themselves. They're all like, oh, you know, we should use tactical nuclear weapons. Every high-ranking general that I've seen an article from or, or seen on the news over the last, call it, three weeks, they all say, we have wargamed this extensively. And it is almost impossible to actually use a tactical nuclear weapon well. Because the, uh, I think it was, it wasn't David Petraeus. Well, I'll find, we'll find the clip and reference it. They, he talks about the general, the former general, talks about having to try and use a tactical weapon on a moving, basically, convoy. Because, that's really all they were good for unless you wanted to hit a command and control center or just destroy a small city. And he said, 
it's almost impossible to get everything lined up where you hit them and you actually knock them out of operation. What's more likely is they're now really mad. They fight you, but they end up getting radiation poisonings like three months later. So the, they're still fighting you. You didn't do anything. And now you dropped a nuke on another country. And the idea that Putin likes to put out that the U.S. set the precedent here is just ludicrous in my mind. What are your what are your thoughts? I agree that Putin is just engaging in whataboutism when he talks about Hiroshima and Nagasaki. That's yeah, that that has no comparison to this situation. But in the doctrine of actually deploying these weapons, that's not the way wars are fought now. It's not mass concentrations of troops where you're going to be able to meaningfully affect the strategic or tactical map with that kind of low-yield weapon. Uh, it just breaks a taboo. And that is something that I think is probably more easily accomplished uh, by a high-level airburst or perhaps a detonation over the Black Sea as a demonstration shot. I think that is the next step on an escalation ladder toward actually actual deployment. I don't think that's a good idea. I don't think it achieves anything other than making the rest of the world angry. Because you can't... I And I would hope that political leaders in Europe and the United States would understand that that's tantamount to nuclear blackmail. And if we were to accept some terms... A peace agreement based on having a nuclear gun to our head, we would open up a Pandora's box of trouble all over the world. Then what happens in Pakistan and India? You know, how many more countries are going to say, well, now we have to get a nuclear weapon so that we can hold other countries ransom because we know the Americans and the Europeans uh, will just allow whatever we want once we've done done this. Um, so, and I think Putin must know that. I think people in the Russian government must know that there is no backing down for the U.S. and Europe if they deploy these weapons in Ukraine, over Ukraine, or near Ukraine. And they just make themselves an even greater international pride than they already are. So I think it's a lose-lose-lose for everyone. And I would hope that cooler heads would prevail inside the Did Kremlin. you... I, I agree with you 100% that this is not likely to occur. Did you hear uh, what David Petraeus said? He thought he, you know, the U.S. or he would have responded if he was still in the government. It was really interesting. And I'm sure it was back channel signaling to to the Russian government. What he said and was the U.S. would target, along with NATO and our European allies, Every Russian military personnel and, and installation we could find in Ukraine and in the Black Sea, including the entire Black Sea fleet, and we would destroy every single one of them with convention, conventional weapons. And in essence, in a few days, destroy the Russian military in Ukraine and their ability to project force into the Black Sea um, for the foreseeable future. And just hand, and then the the Ukrainians would just walk in and take over the territory, uh, not attack anything in Russia, but just absolutely obliterate 
this entire just end this farce basically that's what would happen and i thought it was really telling because not only did i immediately think this is back channel signaling but the russians that's like what they fear most absolutely it's not like oh you're gonna drop a nuke on us you're gonna like use your own tactical nuke because then you're playing their game this was just no we're just going to say this is over with and we're just going to destroy your military and you're going to have nothing to say it wasn't completely conventional we're just going to use other conventional weapons we're going to project power from halfway across the world we're going to come over we're going to wipe this off into your into your backyard we're just going to knock over the chess table exactly and then on top of that we're going to uh allow ukraine to join nato and yeah we're just going to say this is over with so i i think that is you're probably right back channel signaling my fear would be that when push comes to shove we blink because doing there would be such domestic resistance to that policy change here in the u.s that's my bet if they used a nuclear weapon i think even in that case there's going to be all kinds of Putin apologists and contrarians and anti-anti-Putins and all, all of these ghouls will come out and make facile arguments about how uh, Ukraine deserved it and we should stay out of it and it's not our fight and yada, 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 such that that kind of show of force might be politically untenable. Also, there's going to be an equal amount of hand-wringing over, well, he already used one. If we go in there and upset the apple cart with actual U.S. troops or NATO troops, does he drop the next one on Munich or Berlin or Rome or Paris or Washington, D.C.? And I, I think that's also an, uh, both unlikely and a bad argument. Um, but I think it's an argument that people will make and... I would be concerned that we would lose our spine uh, for that fight. It is sad to hear that thought. But, you know, what I think would actually kind of stiffen the spine, if we're going to keep the metaphor going, is the local NATO members, the Poles, folks up in the Baltic, I think they would be howling for blood. Like the Poles would probably say, hey, we'll, we'll put 50,000 troops in the field with our brand spanking new, you know, South Korean tanks and artillery systems. And, and, you know, the U S probably wouldn't even have to do a ton. Like it would just be like air missions that the Ukrainians would say, you know, if they dropped a nuke on Ukraine somewhere, Zelensky would just say, yeah, sure. I will mobilize 200,000 more troops. Uh, give us, you know, weapons and we'll go take these territory. You just hit them with cruise missiles from somewhere in the Mediterranean like it wouldn't even it wouldn't really matter but i i have the same fear like yeah our political landscape is such that there are abilities for folks to weasel out of almost anything and i i fear that there would be there would be some apologists who wouldn't think this is the red line that i think most rational people think it is i agree with you so moving on to one ping only. Eight dollars with a single ping. 
Give me a ping, Vasily. One ping only. Uh, this week, Russians were detained in Alaska after arriving by boat. A couple of Russian, uh, young Russian men jumped in a boat, sailed across the Bering Sea, and claimed asylum. And uh, I believe, yes, uh, no, no confirmation by uh, Customs and Border Patrol on whether or not they were asylum claimants, uh, but they were uh, flown off of the uh, the Aleutians to, I believe, Juneau, where they were awaiting a processing. Very interesting. And bold, if I might say. Very bold. Very bold. Uh, speaking of nuclear deterrence, uh, Jens Stoltenberg, Secretary General of NATO, uh, at their Thursday summit, reiterated that Steadfast Noon, NATO's annual nuclear training exercise, was to start next week. So... We're going to be having a, a major NATO exercise regarding nuclear warfare uh, in uh, the same time frame that nuclear warfare was threatened. It feels like 1985 all over again. Though I will say, I think it's it's not a real week unless the North Koreans threaten to blow up South Korea. So nuclear warfare is on the table almost everywhere when you add in North Korea. That's a fair point. Uh, Lula da Silva back in power in Brazil, it looks like. So that'll be exciting. Always happy when uh, to hear from our dear friend Lula. Uh, we'll see what he makes of the Brazilian government after a, a long period out of power. And finally, the CCP Party Congress coming up. Very exciting. The 20th Party Congress where Xi is widely expected to win a controversial third term in office, making him the longest serving head of the Chinese government since Mao. You know, you take the system, you tear it up, and you just put Xi on top. It's uh, it's going to be interesting. But Son of heaven, Xi Jinping. Son of heaven, <laughs> exactly. I, I did see, to add to that, uh, one of the first open displays of protest I have seen in a very long time around a party congress. Uh, banners on overpasses and uh, manifestos disseminated uh, calling Xi a tyrant. So uh, it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, you know, it's... Yeah, it. it'll uh, definitely... We're not talking about Taiwan this episode, but... Taiwan's probably uh, thinking about how do they protect their island a little bit. I mean, if Xi, Xi's not that old, but he he really has one more term unless he wants to be, you know, uh, emperor for life. emperor for life. So you know, emperor, and then you know, have a tomb with lots of mercury in it to help him last forever. But who knows? I think he looked at what they were doing over in North Korea and said. Those guys have got it on lockdown. You know, a hereditary communist dictatorship. That sounds interesting. Believe in the party. The party will do right. (laughs) Uh, So the promotion of the week goes to Ramzan Kordorov, who is now a colonel general, I believe. Uh, I don't know why, other than unless 
you know, Putin is thinking he's going to mobilize large numbers of Chechens to fight the Ukrainians. But we will see. And then second of all, uh, Turkey just signed a an agreement to or an understanding to be a hub for natural gas into Europe from Russia. So uh, the world is the West is not as united as one would expect or hope. And there are always nationalistic machinations wherever you are, particularly with Erdogan. So uh, we will leave it there next week. We'll have to catch up on the, uh, the, the goings on of the 20th Party Congress. That will be a topic of much discussion along with uh, Ukraine. And frankly, I think we should do a deep dive on uh, who Ramzan Kadyrov is. Where did he come from? What is his deal? Because he has uh, really become a central character in this whole Ukrainian narrative. And... Um, and we'll leave it there. Andrew, another interesting discussion as always. Uh, my glass is empty, so I'm, I'm going to go refill up and uh, we will talk again next week. Thanks, everybody, for joining us on Armchair Generals. And I look forward to hearing from you next week.